Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Uh, welcome back. My name's Jane Miller, Professor of Social Policy um, and a member of the IPR, and it's my uh, pleasure to be chairing this um, panel this afternoon. So we have, we move on from the politics of the morning session, the really excellent presentations we heard this morning, um, to be focused a bit more on the policy side of things, I would say, certainly for this panel. So we start looking a bit down in the weeds about the policy and what happens and how it works out in practice. Um, and we've got four excellent speakers. I've asked them to speak for 10 minutes, about 10 minutes each, so that should give us a bit of time for questions and discussion at the end. And when we get to the questions and discussion at the end, I'll see if I can collect up a few so that we can get a bit of debate and discussion going, hopefully, um, over the issues that are being raised. And our first speaker this afternoon I'm pleased to introduce is Dr Sue Milner from European Politics here at the University of Bath. Um, Sue's research interests are in the area of employment and social policy with a particular focus on gender and identity. She's a member of the Work and Family Research Network and a member of the Steering Committee for Business and the Community's Equal Lives Project. Sue, over to you. I should probably do a plug for that, by the way. I've done your plug. Um, so <laughs> business and the Community's Equal Lives Project, which was launched yesterday. So please do look that up. Um, we can maybe discuss it if you're interested. Okay. Um, it does work. So I wanted to um, give you some thoughts based on a couple of research projects that I have been involved with. Work uh, which is either analysing the British gender pay gap reporting regulations referred to earlier today, um, or work which is drawing on that, looking at how that's affecting other campaigns um, around family-friendly <coughs> benefits in companies. And I've, uh, with French colleagues, finished this year a project which was funded by the French Ministry of uh, Employment and Social Affairs, looking at gender equality plans and agreements in companies. So I thought it might be interesting to compare those two regulatory <coughs> approaches and think about what that um, tells us about regulatory design, what the, what the policy design uh, reflects in terms of uh, the politics around all of this, politics of gender of work, and also whether uh, policy design itself has an impact on outcomes, um, which I think Lynn may also be talking about in a moment. <clears throat> so just to give you some uh, basic um, probably on the, on the French, which you, you, you'll know less about. So France has employer duties going back to the 1980s. They've been in place a while. They've been played around with in various iterations. And uh, some of the more recent ones uh, of those, particularly from 2010, the introduction of financial penalties for employers which weren't either engaging in collective bargaining on gender equality in the workplace or producing what are called unilateral plans, i.e. not collectively bargained. In theory, all French companies um, with 50 or more employees are supposed to be, in any case, according to the law, engaging in collective bargaining annually anyway. Um, and the thrust of the recent regime, you'll have seen the big um, reform of labour law, has retained the principle of annual uh, bargaining at company level on gender equality, but trying to wrap it up more in uh, broader pay negotiations. So, um, duties that have been there a while relating to organisations with 50 or more employees. Uh, the public sector more recently, so um, our research focused on the private sector. Um, 
the requirements are very, very complex, um, and it's impossible just to uh, summarise them really on one slide or even just a couple. Um, employers have to report, and it depends on size, so 300 employees and above, there's a whole raft of um, areas on which employers have to report. Smaller companies, it's a bit less detailed, but still, for smaller companies, at least three areas. Um, pay has to be one of those, but also other things like family-friendly benefits, training, obviously recruitment and promotions. Um, I should say, uh, I probably should have started with this instead of going straight into the regulations, just by way of context, France has a lower aggregate unadjusted gender pay gap than the UK. We know that the UK's is one of the highest in the EU, so, if the, um, so taking Eurostat figures from 2016, the EU as a whole had an unadjusted aggregate gender pay gap of um, just over 16%, 16.2%. France was just under 15%, and uh, the UK at the time was over 20%. It's gone down a little bit since then. But there's quite a big gap between those two countries. Now, I'm not suggesting that's due to the regulatory design, the policy design. Um, I would suggest it's due to structural factors. Um, but again, those raise important questions about policy, and I'll just quickly highlight three, because that puts into perspective what we're trying to get at with these regulations. Um, the first of those, and perhaps the most obvious really, is a difference in the way that employment is organised, uh, much less, although it's increasing part-time work in France, so women tend to be working full-time more, and so that is a big factor when you're looking at the overall gender pay gap. Secondly, in France, for a long time, uh, a statutory minimum wage, which is relatively high and uh, serves as the basis for pay negotiations. Um, authors such as Gerhard Bosch in Germany have long pointed to that, and so that was one of the arguments used when Germany recently uh, introduced statutory minimum wage uh, across sectors. Um, and thirdly, uh, relates to issues around care, which we've hinted at a few times already today. So if you look at the um, gender pay gap in the UK by age, it's really startling. And the Women and Equalities uh, Committee looked at this in 2016. Um, as soon as women reach uh, childbearing years, the gender pay gap increases and it just carries on um, increasing. Uh, not so much the case in other European countries. If you go and have a, have a look, dig around with the, in the statistics, and that's true also for France. Okay, so... Um, if I go on quickly, how am I doing for time? UK. The uh, regulations which were introduced in 2016, we've had one round of reporting, as you know, so we've got data now based on snapshot dates of end of March or beginning of uh, April 2017. Mm -hmm. The regulations apply both to public and private sector organisations and voluntary uh, organisations, uh, but the threshold is higher, 250 employees or more. Now. I was at, uh, as I say, the launch of Equal Lives yesterday, and there was a representative of the Government Equalities Office saying, we have the most advanced <coughs> gender pay gap reporting in the world. Um, uh, and we'll, we can think about why in a minute. Uh, we also have really high compliance rate, 100% compliance rate. Um, and those of you who've been following this in the media will know that that high compliance rate came about, A, because of a lot of media pressure, B, because the Equalities and Human Rights Commissions, um, uh, commissions, plural, uh, 
followed this very closely, monitored closely, and took seven organisations um, or, or threatened seven organisations with prosecution. We also know that there's been a lot of game playing where companies have tried to hide um, high wage gaps within the data they produced. And we also know that there's, there's quite a high margin of error. But as um, the base business um, and industry select committee said in its report, these are teething problems that can be perhaps ironed out in future iterations. So, high threshold, uh, high compliance rate. But if you look at numbers of organisations in France, the compliance rate formally is about 39%. Because the threshold's lower, actually it's more companies in absolute terms. Um, and then we know that the requirements are for these headline figures. So mean and median pay gap, difference between men and women's pay, uh, hourly pay, uh, differences in bonuses, I mean a median and proportion of men and women receiving bonuses. Um, and we've had quite a lot of comments around that, that, that we're not getting enough detail really on what's going on with bonuses. But good that we at least have that information there. Uh, proportion of men and women employed by quartile. And one of the effects of this has been to focus a lot of the discussion on women at the top. How do you get women into leadership positions? Leaving perhaps some of these wider questions around care and caring responsibilities and what's happening to women's careers uh, throughout the organisations and throughout different levels um, to one side. The uh, reports are published on the government website and that is really uh, a, one area where Britain kind of the UK leads the way in that a lot of other countries have reporting, but much of it remains confidential. It's collated and uh, sector figures are given, benchmarks are given, but not individual company information. So it's really this idea of shining the spotlight on what individual organisations are doing. Some companies have had the, sh the spotlight shone on them very, very harshly. Quite a lot have hidden in the herd. So I just want to leave um, this and open up some discussion really on a whole set of issues that that very brief comparison uh, brings out. Uh, one relates to job evaluation. Obviously, we've been looking at gender pay gaps, not the issues around equal pay. In the British context, we have um, a system based on um, job evaluation. Uh, this came about initially from the Dagenham Ford workers struggle and the subsequent uh, moves then uh, to try to get equal pay through litigation. So in order to get cases considered um, in law, in case law, then you have to establish what constitutes equal work of equal value. In France, this has come later. It's been much more about trying to get uh, employers to report on actions according to these different areas. Perhaps less emphasis on job evaluation and that's something feminists have pointed to recently and to say that government needs to do more of. Question about what is it that we're measuring? Are we looking at the gaps at the top mainly or are we thinking about women at the bottom of the pay scale um, and what actions are being put in place to support them? Um, would it be better, and uh, some people are now suggesting this, to get reporting by decile rather than quartile so that we can get more fine-grained information on what's happening particularly at the bottom? How much information is published? What kind of information do we want? And um, what seems likely in future iterations of the regulatory design is that companies will be required to produce narratives. If anybody's looked at the narratives that companies produced, mostly they, it was woeful. 
so very uneven quality and even the better ones really were very very selective in what they chose to present so I think that will be more um, there'll be more obligation around what to talk about um, perhaps more information needed in the British context around full-time versus part-time um, what's happening to part-time workers and how does um, their career progression affect overall gender pay gaps. Narrative I've talked about. Um, indicators and uh, follow-up. Uh, I think uh, there's been a lot of push from um, women within Parliament, in, including in the select committees and outside of Parliament, to get more action. So not just to require employers to report, but to say what they're doing about it. <clears throat> That doesn't look as though it's going to be on the cards, at least in the short term, but it might be something that government could look at later. Um, there is talk that um, in the next round, or in future rounds, perhaps not the very next one, organisations will also be required to report on ethnicity and race. Um, this, I think, will be really interesting to look at because very, very, very few organisations have that information ready. And, and getting the information will be an interesting exercise in itself. And then enforcement. Who is enforcing this? And um, in the French case, so we've seen there was this hardening of uh, financial penalties, but what we found in our own research was that there were quite a few agreements still slipping through the net. So um, the Labour Inspectorate, which had the job of enforcing compliance, had to do so in a very restrictive way. And so we found lots of cases where um, agreements were not actually properly complying in terms of reporting on the required number of areas they were supposed to report on. They weren't giving uh, gender breakdowns as they were supposed to be doing according to this um, plan that's supposed to accompany the agreement. So we found that there was quite a high proportion of lip service compliance in the French case. So you're talking about these trade-offs. by. Um, increasing duties on employers were getting richer data but were also perhaps increasing the risk of lip service compliance and just tick box exercises unless we really think carefully about enforcement and I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to a very interesting um, use of comparative data to highlight and draw out some of these issues. And I think we're going to continue with the comparative theme for our next speaker, who's Professor Lynn Prince-Cook from uh, the Department of Social Policy here at the University of Bath. Um, Lynn's research uses a variety of large-scale national and cross-national data sets to explore issues of how labour markets and social transfers structure inequalities among men and women as well as between them. She's currently leading a major European Research Council project which is, among other things, analysing linked employee-employer data to analyse these inequalities within and across organisations. Lynn, over to you. Thank you, Jane. Um, and this work is in conjunction with my colleagues Rosella Akabi and Anna Hagland, um, because it, it takes a village to do good research, I've decided. Now, <laughs> the, the topic of interest here is what policies work to narrow the wage gap? I'm sure at some point we've heard one of the main reasons for this gender wage gap and inequalities has to do with children and the family gap, and as Sue just mentioned, when you get them early in the career, there's a very small gender gap, but as women start having babies, the gap grows. So we realize that family is a key source of stratification, 
And the impact of children it tends to predict wage penalties for mothers. So as, as they have children, their wages go down for a variety of reasons. But at the same time, and what's not studied quite so much, is having children also tends to predict premiums for men. So fathers tend to make more money than do childless men. And so these two facets together structure the family gap in wages that's very central to the gender wage gap more generally. Now we have policies that often in the name of gender equality, often as well under trying to reduce child poverty because children who end up with a single mother who can't earn a good living are going to be poor. Um, they will try to reduce this gender disparity in care work and employment. So what I call the gender division of labor, along with others. And so my, our question is, you know, do they work? Um, so we're trying to see, the other aspect is, and Sue highlighted this as well, most people compare the policy effects on average. And I don't, have any of you ever met an average person? You know, we're a lot of varieties, and we think one important dynamic of this is how much money do they make. So relative resources for juggling paid and unpaid work are quite important. So we're also interested in the stratifying effect of parenthood among women and among men in three different policy contexts. What happened? Germany's in there. It's just not showing up yet. And I'm going to go briefly through this because Jane has put a whip on us for 10 minutes. Now, we're in Britain, so you're probably aware of that. And in Europe, it's one of the stronger male breadwinner regimes. It's got a very long, primarily unpaid maternity leave, reinforcing women's responsibility for care work. Spotty public child care, which my friends also advise me, is massively expensive, um, which reinforces this women's care work and men's employment. But they did get progressive in 2003. You ready? They gave men two weeks of paternity leave. Woo! Now, then we compare it with Finland, which is one of the Nordic, the famous Nordic Democrat, social democratic welfare states. And what they're renowned for is they were the first to offer uh, paid maternity leave, extend it to paternity leave, and then start doing shared parental leave. And Finland is no ex exception. At the same time, they expanded public child care to allow women to engage in the labor market more equally with men, which after children reach the age of three is the case. But even in these contexts, with the cultural norms, the men weren't quite taking up the same level of leave as mom. So also in 2003, they introduced a daddy month. So if fathers took it, they could, you know, they could take the month. If they didn't take it, the family lost it to encourage more men. And it was quite successful. It really increased the percentage of dads taking leave um, more than tenfold, actually, over time. And then we have a really interesting case. I love it when policy throws you these, wow, who would have thought? And that's Germany. Because historically, Germany was the quintessential male breadwinner state. Because unlike in England, a family could actually live on a man's wages in Germany. And in England, they'd always, in the UK, it always needed women to top up the low wage market we have here. And they had long, in the late 80s, they extended paid maternity leave to three years. And then women, when they returned, often returned to part-time work as they do in the UK. So Germany had always said, oh, quintessential male breadwinner, male breadwinner. Well, they had a bit of a crisis and a voting crisis, depending on what it was, and some employments. And in, 19, in 2007, fundamental change of policy for this country. 
They increased the rate of replacement for maternity leave to two, more than two-thirds of wages, but you had to do it for only 12 months. And if fathers participated, they'd extend it for two more months. So unlike the Nordic country, where this daddy month was, yeah, natural progression, this was a total about-face for Germany in terms of supporting, uh, narrowing the gender division of labor. That really wasn't their purpose, but it was still what these policies expect to do. So what we're curious about are two questions. And the first is, you know, did these policies attempting to promote dual caring and dual earning actually narrow the, way, uh, the wage inequalities for each gender predicted by parenthood? And how do they affect the stratification among parents. In, in other words, did they affect low-wage parents the same as people at the median or high-wage parents? And we're now going to a series of graphs, but I have no tables. I know as soon as Jane says, she does advanced quantity, y'all went, Ugh. But hopefully this will be a painless way to digest the information. Now, can you see that okay from there? What this is, one of the things I would like to point out in the first place, and this is the current paper with um, Rosella and Anna, is what's the gross? How do parents' wages compare with non-parents? Not controlling for education or, 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 or this actually might. So just comparing them with childless. Okay, what you'll notice is two things, hopefully, on this graph. This would be no difference in what they earn. Now, here we have what, how do mothers compare with non-mothers in the three countries? And you'll notice in every single case, at every point in the wage distribution, mothers earn more than childless women. Okay, so they're not only being reproductive, they're being productive in the labor market. And the same is not unsurprisingly true of men. Germany's yellow, blue is England, and green is Finland. And, but then you notice it's much higher. Their premium as compared with childless men is much higher. So this just highlights that the, the parents are actually contributing to both spheres that keep our societies going forward. Now what I want to show you though is just comparing to childless really isn't where we come up with the gender gap. It's how did having children affect your wages from prior to when the kid came, which is what Sue pointed out, then after the kid, I shouldn't call them kids, as the child gets older. And this is what these next series of graphs um, reflect. So how do people's wages compare with before they had a child at different points in the wage distribution? And for moms, as you can see here, this, the solid line is the pre-reform that it predicted, oh, this is just, it's not post yet, pre-reform, that compared with what they were earning before the child, at both the bottom of the wage distribution and the middle, moms were expected to take a hit. Okay, there was a penalty at the middle, a modest one of, of two to five percent, bigger at the bottom. The people who could least afford to lose money are taking a bigger proportional hit. Whereas at the top, in Finland, actually, look, among women, it's pretty much the same. They all take a five percent hit. So parenthood doesn't increase inequality among women in Finland. However, we notice in both the UK and, and Britain and Germany, my colors changed that the highest earning women actually, even after the kids, are doing better. So they're not getting quite the same degree of motherhood penalty that the lowest wage women are having. So what happened after the reform, this push for equality? Would we expect much change in the UK with two weeks of paternity leave? No, 
And in the interim, we also had this little thing called the financial crisis, which of course these things always affect every worker. So we notice after, it's quite interesting though, despite the crisis, the impact on any given person in Britain on any given woman increased. So now the moms are even worse off than they were before the crisis when they have, when they have a child compared to what they were doing. Finnish moms, when we introduced the, uh, the daddy month, they're actually doing a tiny bit better. It doesn't, that's not a huge gap, but it's in the right direction. And what happened with Germany is that it didn't change too much, but what did happen is the differences between the lowest and the highest shrank because they got more equal. So the highest earning moms aren't doing um, that much better. So it equalized the stratifying effects of parenthood among German women. What about dads? Again, um, these are, I'm going now to the net. I showed you the gross. Interesting, and this is what a lot of people don't realize, that fatherhood at the bottom of the wage, where's my arrow? There we go. At the bottom of the wage distribution, compared to what they were doing, takes a tiny bit of a hit. So even low-wage fathers can, are facing penalties. Not all of these are significant, but this contrasts with the high-wage father being expected to earn premiums. And as you can see, when you assume, you, most of the time we have low-wage women partnering with low-wage men and high-wage women partnering with high-wage men. You can see the magnification of inequality across families. So this was before the reform, and, and equality generally among fathers was more equal in Finland. So the differences between the, word, the lowest and the highest were smaller. So what about after the reforms? Again, we wouldn't expect much in England, but did the rather stark reforms in Germany and Finland change anything? And once again, it seems the crisis affected the British fathers too, and now the lowest up to the median were expected to have a 5% penalty after they started having children, after um, the 2003. Um, in Germany, it, the, again, it started to equalizing the effects between the highest and lowest wage dads. So it didn't too much alter the absolute impact of parenthood in Germany, but it did narrow the inequality between the most and the least advantaged, which is always a good thing for most policy people. And you can see in Finland, very, very little difference. But so both the absolute magnitude and the difference between high and low wage dads stay pretty much the same. So the other thing, though, to think of is, as I said, the introduction of this daddy month, this is with a doctoral student from Stockholm, Caddy Moroso. Um, you can see that's pretty impressive. This is how the percentage of dads who were taking um, father, that fatherhood, the extra parental leave afterwards across wage deciles. Before the reform, about 2% of the lowest wage dads were doing it, whereas after the reform, almost 5%. I mean, after the reform, that increased to 6%, and we see the same increase at the top. So the reform itself increased men's caring, the proportion of men caring and caring for longer, but it didn't affect that family wage gap. So the economic inequality continues. Our paper, we're finishing up, why daddy doesn't do it? It's because you know, in Finland, when you compare fathers who took the leave with fathers who didn't now, this isn't you know, fathers with themselves, you can see that again, there's a penalty for the dads at the bottom who took parental leave. So there's a double thing, the more you care, 
the bigger the penalty compared with dads who didn't. So are, is policy narrowing the gender inequality? That's up for discussion. So conclusions we've done, these are tentative because these are early days with this research. Mothers and fathers are both productive and reproductive. There was a long time where you heard the gender wage gap is because women want to sit at home and raise children and gossip and they don't want to be active. And that's rubbish. You know, both men and women want to be active in both family and employment and are. But the policies that are narrowing this gender division of labor slightly reduce some of the net penalties of motherhood and the premiums for fatherhood. But differences only reach statistical significance in Finland, and that's only because we have 100,000 people in the data set. So you have to be a bit um, reticent about that. But the post-reform reduction in variation was more among women and men. It didn't change much of the absolute in terms of reforms, but it did seem to narrow some of the inequalities. But they still persist. Families at the bottom, the mothers and fathers at the bottom, are taking a bigger hit. Um, so one of the things is, is why? I mean, this is one of the things to explore. Is it that the low-skilled parents lacking money have, are less productive because it's harder to struggle, the car goes out, the kid gets sick, how to find? I mean, I always tease my friends, middle-class people buy themselves out of problems. If you don't have money, how are you going to buy yourself out of the work-life family struggle? Or another possibility, are employers exploiting low-wage parents? Knowing that they need this job security, they probably don't have a massive savings account, and so pay them less than they would non-employment. Or the alternative, of course, are employers taking to account child transfers. And so the wage they're earning is assumed to be topped up by the state, which still makes them worse off in the labor market. So these are things to consider. And we have to, we have to figure out where do these inequalities grow, because another research prog uh, and this is where Sue specializes, we have to look at the role of employers. They're the interface between humans and the market. There is no labor market. There's organizations with whom we, for whom we work. So we have to look at the, their important place in this, especially, now this is something my colleagues on a, a network of other researchers analyzing these register data that cover the whole workforce of countries that is a little scary because I won't go through, walk through all the details, but we, we compare, these are three of what I consider the most contrasting countries. Netherlands, which is somewhere between Germany and a Nordic country, Norway, another Nordic country, and South Korea, which is an emerging, uh, a developing economy, but rapidly. If you look at the gender wage gap, in the population, much as the figures you've heard about so far, we can see the massive difference, 14% in the Netherlands to almost 40% in South Korea. But some of that's because women tend to go into lower wage firms, women tend to go into lower wage occupations. We know this, you're a mother, you can't be CEO, you know, it's harder, so maybe you take a lesser job, et cetera. We know this from our lives, if not from research. But what is terrifying me, and this is what we have to unpack, if you compare a woman in the same job, in the same firm, okay, this is what discrimination is. You have a 6% gap in the Netherlands, a 10% gap in Norway, and an almost a 19% gap in South Korea. And this is what we have to unpack, because these are people side by side doing the same work. And that's just not acceptable. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
thank you very much for an interesting um, unpicking of the complexities in the different areas. So our next speaker is Dr Rita Griffiths from the Institute for Policy Research here at Bath. Uh, Rita's carried out a number of studies of government welfare and active labour market programmes targeted on low-income families, young people, people with disabilities and other groups at a disadvantage in the labour market. She's currently co-investigator on an ESRC project uh, funded project examining work and care and financial decision making in couples with dependent children receiving universal credit and is going to talk to us a bit more about universal credit. Rita. Um, yeah, as, as Jane's just said, um, I'm working on a, um, a three-year research project looking at uh, universal credit and particularly uh, its impact on couples with children. We don't actually have any findings uh, to report yet. We've only recently started the project. So what I'd like to focus on today is just the policy design around universal credit. Um, so, oops, all right, go back. Okay, so um, it's been in the news a lot. Universal credit, it's replacing um, six means-tested benefits and tax credits with a single monthly payment, and that's per individual or um, for couples who must claim jointly, um, um, it's, um, it's a, uh, an individual payment too. It's the most significant change to the welfare system um, since the inception of the welfare state. And somewhere between seven and eight million households um, at the last estimate are expected to be claiming the benefit when it's fully rolled out, um, which um, is a bit of a moving target. At the moment, it's about 2023. Um, and half of all families with children will actually be claiming the benefit as well. Um, it's a deeply gendered policy, and it's, it will have huge, huge impacts on women, particularly women with dependent children. Um, and there have been a lot of concerns raised um, recently about this issue, and particularly the potential of the um, single monthly payment to couples and the way in which it might uh, reduce women's financial independence. Um, today I'd also like to look at um, whether the policy will help or hinder women's labour market entry and earnings progression, which is the focus of the policy. Okay. So, um, so according to the government, there are... Um, the additional claimants moving into work, and um, the current estimate is an additional 200,000 claimants um, moving into work or earning more, which is also a focus of the policy, so increasing progression in work as well as in encouraging the transition into work and benefits. So they will do so as a result of three significant changes to the social security system. So first we have uh, improved financial incentives to work. So. Universal credit incorporates um, a taper, which is intended to reduce the benefit gradually as earnings rise. So instead of having a, a cliff edge of eligibility, um, it gradually um, reduces as earnings increase. Um, there's also a uh, work allowance for parents. So um, essentially the first slice of earnings are disregarded before the benefit starts to be reduced. Um, Although there is only one working allowance, uh, whether it's a lone parent or whether it's um, uh, a couple. 
and parents in work, so working parents, are also entitled to more generous um, financial help towards childcare costs. Second um, is a much more demanding set of conditionality requirements, and they've been extended under universal credit to new groups of claimants. So for the first time, partners in couples with children and also claimants who are already in work will be subject to conditionality. The rules are incredibly complex, so there's, um, uh, there's no time to go through them at, um, at, at the presentation, but um, people are still working through um, what it actually means, particularly for couples who have very complex rules. Thirdly is improved simplicity. So um, this is through the, uh, the single taper, also through um, automatic adjustment of the benefit if earnings rise or fall for, uh, for people who are on uh, PAYE, and also uh, the single monthly payment. So this is paid into a nominated bank account, which for couples could be a single account or could be a joint account. Each of these changes will have disproportionate impacts on women, uh, more especially women with caring responsibilities. So that includes lone parents as well as mothers living with a partner. Okay, so to look at financial incentives. Um, so help towards childcare costs um, is more generous. Uh, up to 85% is payable. But the 15% still needs to be bridged. Um, and as many speakers have already mentioned today, the UK has one of the highest childcare costs in OECD, OECD countries. So um, for parents who have to pay for childcare, the uh, financial gain from working could very easily be wiped out. And then budget cuts as well that have been imposed on universal credit have significantly reduced the value of uh, work allowance. And this is uh, significantly weaken the financial incentives to work for parents. Second earners in couples are particularly disadvantaged because couples only have one work allowance between them. So the vast majority affected by these policies are women. So the government's response to this um, is that some second earners could choose to reduce their hours or to leave work altogether. So it's not only a deeply contradictory message in terms of the overall policy thrust of universal credit, but it's also hugely regressive. It's actually harking back to a previous era in the 1950s, even, even further back from our speaker this morning, a Victorian era of breadwinning men and stay-at-home mothers. It's also incredibly disingenuous for the government to, to argue this, because low earnings and high housing costs actually mean that dual earning in couples is an economic necessity, not a choice for most couples, particularly low-earning couples, those earning modest wages. And also, um, there'd be no need for an extension of the conditionality regime um, if that's what the government wanted to do to discourage mothers uh, from going, in couples from going out to work. So, to look then at the extension of conditionality. So um, for more than a decade, lone parents have already had their options um, to remain outside the labour market progressively curtailed. So under universal credit, these restrictions have been extended even further. So once the youngest child is aged three, um, most lone parents um, are required to spend 16 hours a week in work or looking for work. And that has to be evidenced 
job search as well. And then this rises to 25 hours as soon as a child um, reaches the age of five. So between the ages of five and 12, 25 hours. And then once the youngest child is 13, the regulations actually make no concessions at all to the parenting role. Like single claimants, lone parents are required to look for work or to work for 35 hours a week. Under universal credit, these rules have now been extended to um, couples with children. So uh, in such couples, uh, there's a requirement uh, to nominate a lead carer with main responsibility for caring for children. Um, like lone parents, lead carers can restrict their working hours, but conditionality is mandatory until the couple's joint earnings reach a minimum threshold. The policy is gender neutral, so either parent could be the lead carer, but in practice the vast majority of lead carers will be women because of their lower uh, wage rates. And it's been pointed out by many uh, organisations, um, Alison Gon of the Child Poverty Action Group, it will hugely reinforce the gender di division of labour, this policy. Um, and the question has to be asked, why can't both men and women restrict their hours to care for children? Why is there a necessity of nominating a lead carer? <coughs> also, um, the policy makes no... Um, balance by offering compensating rights to lead carers. So the joint claimants in a couple have no independent right to receive any part of the single monthly payment. Um, and that's <clears throat> what I'm going to finally talk about. So precisely how a single monthly payment is intended to incentivise work or higher earnings, we don't know. There's very little uh, that's been said. Um, but whether it's paid into a single or a joint account, it assumes that there's fairness and equity between men and women in couples in the distribution and control of household finances. And um, countless research studies for decades have shown that this is not necessarily the case. And it's actually quite dangerous to assume so. So other research has shown how women with little or no access to an independent income um, might be prevented from leaving a controlling or an abusive partner. And that this is why many women's organisations have actually been campaigning um, for alternative payments for, um, for couples. And the Scottish Government is actually considering splitting the benefit equally by default. Um, but the UK Government is insisting that the policy um, of the single monthly payment should remain and that alternative payments, splitting payments between couples, should be by exception only and also at the discretion of a job centre decision maker. <coughs> so, is the design actually consistent with the policy intent of getting people uh, into work? It may well be the case that universal credit actually does encourage some women with children into work and to become more active in the labour market than earlier than they might otherwise have done so. And for some, this may be a good thing, if they're supported into work, if their partner has, um, has prevented them from going out to work, it might actually give them the opportunity to earn an independent income that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to. But if a key policy goal of universal credit is getting low-income mothers into sustainable employment, is the structure of financial incentives and the conditionality regime really the best way of achieving it? Um, the implication here is that many of these mothers don't actually want to work and that they have to be coerced or indeed compelled into the labour market. But the last 40 years has seen 
an unstoppable rise in the proportion of mothers in employment. Uh, in 1975, only half of mothers went out to work. Now, three quarters of partnered mothers and two thirds of lone parents um, are in paid employment. And these proportions look set to rise still further. So policymakers are actually pushing um, at an open door, uh, politicians and policymakers. Rather than wielding um, a big stick, the same goal of increasing the proportion of low-income mothers um, in the labour market, in the workforce, could, be, could therefore be achieved in other ways. So, for example, um, extending early education, maybe more uh, for, uh, for children, maybe more effective than a financial contribution towards um, paid childcare, which, um, which some mothers um, prefer not to use. Okay. So... Um, the message that, um, that universal credit is worrying for gender equality is um, it's regressive, it has disproportionate impacts on women. Countless academics and women's organisations have been uh, shouting this message um, ever since universal credit was mooted. Um, and across the political spectrum, many now agree. So um, Frank Field, chair of the Working Pensions Committee, it's a return to the 1950s. It turns the clock back on hard-won equality. Heidi Allen, also a member of the, the Work and Pensions Committee, Conservative MP. In the 21st century, women deserve to be treated as independent citizens with their own aspirations, responsibilities and challenges. The Scottish Government um, agrees and is considering splitting payments um, for couples. There are still issues with that, which uh, I won't go into here. So it's not necessarily a a resolution of the problem, but, but they're, they're looking at different ways of paying couples. But you will find precious little recommendation um, of, um, of the current government or discussion of the gendered aspects of universal credit um, in any official documentation or any DWP uh, government statement. In fact, the last equality impact assessment for universal credit was done in 2011, before a lot of the benefit cuts were imposed. Okay, so I'll just finalise with what can be done. Um, so, updating the equality impact assessment would be a good start. Um, but the question also needs to be asked whether uh, universal credits design is actually fit for purpose. Is it appropriate for women in couples? Is it suited to families with children? So it's a broader question. And then thirdly, an even broader question is whether a wider review of uh, social security, the family-based system of social security is actually needed, of which universal credit forms a part. So it's still based on the same notion of a single breadwinner um, and um, joint assessment um, of couples for the purposes of means testing. It cannot be right that when uh, the vast majority of women now go out to work and that dual learning in couples is an economic necessity, that means-tested benefits are still based on the assumption that one member of a couple should be economically dependent on the other. And if we're going to make further inroads in relation to reducing gender inequality in the social security system, but also in the wider labour market, then this fundamental contradiction within uh, the social security system really needs to be resolved. Thank you very much for listening.
very much, Rita, highlighting the importance of really looking closely at the design of policies, not just the headline aims. Um, so our final speaker on the panel this afternoon is Professor Neera Yuval Davis, who's Director of the Centre for Research on Migration, Refugees and Belonging at the University of East London. She has researched and written widely on intersected gender gendered nationalisms, racisms, fundamentalisms, citizenships, identities and belonging. She's a founder member of Women Against Fundamentalism and has acted as a consultant for various UN and human rights organisations. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. And um, I, in many ways, uh, the other speakers, especially also Gita in the previous um, panel with whom I've been working for many years in Women Against Fundamentalism, have uh, established uh, some kind of a context to what I want to talk about. Um, I'm also grateful that so many of the speakers mentioned the intersectionality approach in order to understand some of the issues that we are uh, talking about because the issues is not just women or women's equality, but which women. Um, we talked about women's quota. Uh, UN Resolution 1325 speaks about taking more women to participate in the peace process. But, you know, we live under Theresa May, Margaret Thatcher. I grew up with Golda Meir in Israel. These are all women that between them and peace, there is a very wide gap. <laughs> Therefore, I think we have always to think about which women, moreover, to differentiate between the social positioning of women or people in general, between their identities and identifications, as well as their normative value system. If we collapse them together, I think this is the kind of identity politics that we would like to oppose. Um, just very quickly to give you an example, when Abrahami was a UN uh, rep social representative in Afghanistan after the war, they wanted to bring women participation in the politics in the parliament. So they brought women and nothing changed. And then they realized that even if these women were not the wives or the sisters of the men in the parliament, they were members of the parties and they voted as the very patriarchal parties told them how to vote. So they decided to change from just saying women to say women who had experience in working in women's organization or nurseries or any other kind of women's welfare organization and then the factor of women's influence on policies started to work. So we have to be very, when we talk about policies, when we talk about intersectionality, when we talk about women's rights, we have to be very attentive to that. Now this panel is about barriers for, about policies, about barriers for equalities. And we've had some various aspects and various policies. The policies I want to focus on are immigration policies, which have not been, at this panel, even uh, hinted upon, and the devastating effect, not only in terms of employment, 
but about every aspect of life. I'm going to show a couple of minutes. Um, I, we are now, um, myself, Georgie Wimmers, and Catherine Cassidy, finishing a book we called Bordering, in which we are arguing that the technology of everyday bordering has replaced the technology of multiculturalism as the hegemonic technology to control diversity as well as discourses on diversity in Britain today and in more and more countries in the West and in the world in general. And we can relate it very directly also to the issues of Brexit and Trump and so on. In my writing, I've been, I mean, people talked about the Victorian period and then said for some reason things are now more similar than before. In my writing, I related to it, to the double crisis of governability and governmentality as a result of neoliberal globalization. And if there'll be time in the discussion, we can talk um, about it more. But now I want to focus about the fact that when we talk about intersectional social divisions, it's not just gender and race and ethnicity and class, or even stage in the life cycle and sexuality and ability, but more and more, in more and more societies in the world, is citizenship status. So maybe we can just watch now these three minutes in this film. It's When you Google Everyday Borders, you can download it. We have traveled the country in a consortium of several different migrants organizations, and we showed it different academic and civil society and also in the parliament. And I think uh, although it was done just before the 2016 Immigration Act, after the 2014 Academic Act, uh, Immigration Act, um, it shows some of the elements which I'm going to talk about. So. <laughs> Those women I've seen with an immigration issue are often contemplated or attempted suicide. Not only do they have nightmares of the violence and abuse that they've been subjected to, but they're now, in addition, having fears and nightmares about being raided and picked up. They raped in the morning, six o'clock, and uh, in the morning it was so scary. My son started crying when they came. And he was so scared. He was thinking, what's going to happen next? Yes. What happened to my mom? What's going to happen to my mom? So what's going to happen to my dad? They're so scared. It's, it's like you are always afraid that maybe one day you'll be thrown out on the street. Some landlords use it to intimidate you into sexual activities. The, the situation is degrading you as a human being. Because if you're in this particular situation where you can't even afford to buy your medication, you can't pay for your house rent, you are forced. If you, are, if you don't have strong will, you are forced to do anything in order to get it. I, I am an example. There has been a situation where the landlord was telling me that it would be much better for me to accept his sexual advances in order to stay in the house. 
It's true. It's one of the things that made me to leave that place. But you leave it to a worst situation. When you go out on street, station or bus, immigration people, they are checking your status. When you go to NHS, you have to show your passport. So I feel so suffocated all the time. Do I deserve this kind of life? I suffered my childhood. My brother was controlling my life. After that, my husband and his family, they were controlling my life. And now certain of the point in this country, I'm, the immigration is controlling my life. So every time I feel like, where can I get free? I'm telling my counseling all the time. I want to breathe. I want to, I'm just, watching out of the window i'm not allowed to work i'm not allowed to do anything i'm just sitting home and no money no money for medication and every time i'm thinking it's better to die rather than living this kind of horrible life so on the one hand the state is saying please come forward and report domestic violence and rape but on the other hand what they're not doing is protecting the most vulnerable in society and those are those women who don't have a status often in the country or they're imprisoned in their homes and can't get out because there's a control over the family and the parents over somebody's status. Gita spoke in the previous panel about the torture of being in detention. I think this couple of minutes have shown you that torture can actually happen outside detention as well. One of the things that we kind of discovered when we did this research is that according to the stage of applications of asylum seeker and so on, they can be recalled to the home office uh, sometimes once in every few months, sometimes every few weeks, sometimes every few days. Each time when they stayed in the queue, which usually they have to wait for about two or three hours, they never know if when they come to the interview, they'll be interviewed and then go back home, or they will be taken to a detention center, or they'll be taken to the airport and be deported. The, this precariousness, this not knowing what is going to happen to you from one min moment to another, is I think one of the most horrible uh, things that happen to these people that we call live in gray zones, which are kind of spreading to all those kind of excluded all over the world, but also in the north and in our cities and not just in the global south and not just outside the borders like in the Calais jungle, which we also stud studied in our research. What has been happening is that until the 2014 Immigration Act, the state services were offered to anybody who was called ordinary resident or, or citizen, which means that as long as you were lawfully in the country, you were offered the services. After 2014, anybody who does not have at least an 
indefinite leave to remain, which requires at least five years residency in the country, doesn't get virtually anything except the most minimal uh, accommodation or if they applied for more than 12 months, uh, some kind of allocation, which is about 50% of those that British people who uh, are on, on uh, em employment uh, uh, seekers. But mostly, they do go to the uh, food banks and to other places. But the kind of accommodation, when we talk to, to people, they, they are dispersed to places very often there's no choice in this. If they are offered accommodation, they have no choice of where they're going to be. Usually, not only they are uh, dispersed away from any kind of networks of family or friends and so on, but also quite far away from where food is available or where is any other kind of uh, possibilities are available. In terms of the NHS, people are afraid to go because their data is going to be reported to the Home Office, as was mentioned in a previous uh, panel. What happens is then that people wait until they have an emergency situation, which of course is much more expensive to the NHS if, than if they would have gone just when something would be um, uh, would have happened um, in, uh, you know, when it just uh, happened. However, recently, as a result of the crisis of Windrush generation and so on, the NHS have been released from this role of reporting to the Home Office, unlike employers and teachers and uh, bankers and driving a, a, a teacher's uh, license officers and and even conductors of marriages between people um, who were not, at least one of them were not born in the EU. But what happened is, and this is very much linked to the aspect that again, I think was underplayed here, is a privatization of the welfare state. I'll give you an illustrative example of this student from an African country who was doing an MA here, and she was diagnosed with a cancer, the breast, and she was getting um, some radiation treatment. Now, the radiation treatment course did not finish by the time her student visa collapsed. She couldn't leave the country because of her health situation, so she was allowed to stay but she was not allowed to work. But she, it was demanded that she would pay full private fees for the continuation of the radiation, which is thousands of pounds. This is a kind of traps that people found themselves in this everyday bordering. Now, this everyday bordering, as I just mentioned and other mentioned, have a terrible effect on those who are here only on either irregular status or applying for status. And as you may know, more and more, even when you get the status, it is now limited in time. Often it is just for five years. 
refugee status, status that used to be transitory until you would settle in the country. Now it's five years or until it is safe in your country of origin. And we know there were horrible stories that people were forced to go back to Iraq when the conflict was still continuing in Afghanistan and so on. What is uh, happening? I was doing research among refugee co uh, communities in Southeast London. And one of the groups which was in the best situation relative to others were the Kosovan. And it was a youth group, and one of the parents, when we just kind of met them, told me, I hate Thursdays. And I said, why do you hate Thursdays? Apparently, Thursdays was a day that without any warning, seemingly in a random system, a letter would be received telling, Kosovo is now safe. You have to leave the country in about 30 days or whatever, no matter that children education, their own jobs, their own kind of planning your life. So the most basic human right, even to imagine a future for yourself, is taken from these people. But this everyday bordering, which is, is spreading throughout society. I, I, I listened to a discussion of the amendment of 2016 of um, immigration law, which when people try to prevent that immigration officers would be on labor tribunal, but it was defeated. We attended breakfast for homeless people running by religious local charities in which immigration officers had surgery for people to tell them on either on illegal migrants, others, or to confess that they are illegal and ask for aid to, to, you know, to leave the country. And the most corrosive effect is really affect everybody, not just the migrants, because it become all the city. This aspect also in terms of employment, very often the so-called irregular migrants are the brother-in-law or the father-in-law in the restaurant that came in order to help. So it divides families, it divides communities, it divides any kind of convivial, pluralist uh, society. So in terms of policy, abolish the hostile environment regulation. Take back borderings to the borders. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Nira. Thank you very much, Nira. A very powerful account reminding us of the, how borders are everywhere now. They're not just at the border, as it were, but they're everywhere exactly. in our society. Um, forgive me, um, I did allow our speakers to run on perhaps a bit longer than we said at the beginning, but they were also interesting, and I wanted to hear what they had to say. So we have just a few minutes left for a couple of questions or points from the floor. So if anyone wants to wave their hand so that we can get started on those. So I've got one here. Can I collect uh, any more? Any other hands? Yes, and I've got one down the front. So we'll start with those two. Um, it, it, does this work? Right. 
my question was about the university cre uh, universal credit have um, and the uh, codependency code really of, of, of people in couples um, implied by the the policy uh, <laughs> has the government given any consideration to the transition from families with couples to families without you know because I can imagine it, it, it would be quite complex to unravel something like that when you know intimate relations as we've been discussing earlier break down yeah okay so hold that thought family breakdown question down the front here or a point um keep them brief if you can thank you um wanted to ask uh Nira what you think about the cities of sanctuary in the UK and whether or not they're having any effect in terms of helping asylum seekers what else they can do mm -hmm. good do we have another question or... yes right at the back have to run with the microphone. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask if there was a premium for women to return to work earlier. So the ones that return to work before the, I don't know, six months of maternity leave, if there is a premium and if that um, reduces um, the gap um, which would suggest that part of the difference comes from women not being able to promote during that time or, or other, other factors like that. Okay, thank you. The length of the gap. Let's take those three. They're quite specific, so I'll go to the specific people. Rita, family breakdown, universal credit. Um, yeah, I mean, the dynamic nature of family change hasn't been taken into account at all in this policy, either in relation to family breakdown nor in relation to family formation. So the assumption is that families are fairly static. It's a very normative policy, so it assumes that um, you have um, two members of the couple in a stable relationship. Um, so in practice, <coughs> what will happen, essentially, is that a new claim will have to be made for universal credit. So as soon as there is any change of circumstance, um, then um, there is often um, a, a change of payment. If, um, if you're talking about family breakdown, then essentially a new c claim would have to be made on the part, uh, on both um, parties um, and that the whole issue about putting in a new application for universal credit the delays to payment um, the fact that there's a minimum five week delay in terms of payment that's actually built in by design so that's not a problem with implementation that that's how the policy has been designed so um, so no no account has been taken of it um, and in fact um, there is an argument to be made that it could actually discourage fam certainly family formation um, because of the risks involved. Nira, Cities of Sanctuary. Yeah, this is very much kind of started as an American movement where churches actually were able to hide and, and protect uh, asylum seekers. In Britain, police have the authority and which they use in order to invade uh, churches and other kind of uh, sanctuary. But all kind of campaigns against the protection of specific families, specific com communities in the past have been very powerful to mo and mobilized a lot of people and sometimes have been successful. This is why with the years there have been a move to segregate asylum seekers more and more from local communities, including the children and, and, and so on. And therefore, it has 
not been as successful here as in the United States. Okay. Thank you. And the length of time out for maternity. Uh, Lynn, yes. do you want to start on that um, one then, Sue? We haven't studied that directly, but there is evidence that the length you take out, uh, you take on leave does matter for the ultimate impact. <laughs> but you have to realize this gender division of labor has an effect on women who never have children as well, because the expectations get embedded in the system. And Sue was talking a bit about this, of the employers finding different ways to make themselves look good and that sell for the same job, you know, why the, the gap is. But that's just on the fringes. And we've looked at years going, oh, yes, but women don't work as much. They take two leave. But even when you account for all that and some of the most rigorous studies, there's still a 10% average gap, for instance, in the U.S. of women who never took a break, et cetera. It just persists. Two. Anything just, just quickly on the... <clears throat> on the French comparison, again, which was uh, suggesting that where you had a policy that was aimed at keeping, uh, supporting women out of the labour market, that it was disproportionately, um, well, first of all, more uh, women of, uh, on lower incomes were taking the leave for longer. So in a way, it was kind of, it was, it was a different kind of policy. It was a social assistance policy that was masquerading almost as a, as a maternity leave policy. Um, but interestingly, when, when uh, there was an attempt to reform that um, by introducing work conditionality and all sorts of other things, it got mixed up with, with other um, bits of policy and um, has, has not either helped to um, unpick some of the uh, penalties for women. It's just made things worse, actually, in the French case. Thank you very much. Well, we've run out of time. Um, the panellists will be here over coffee or tea, so if you've got any questions you want to take up with them, you can do it at that point. But we need to stop this session now. Thank our speakers again for a really interesting set of presentations.